Jesus is not saying, look on the bright side. Yes. He's not saying there's a silver lining here. Jesus is saying, I am pronouncing you to be something that you are not in yourselves. Right. <laughs> and by my pronouncing it, it is now hereby so. Yeah. You are blessed. You are heirs of the kingdom of heaven, regardless of your circumstances that seem to count against this promise. But I preached it, and it is so, and you believe it and are justified. Yeah. On this edition of the White Horse Inn, we're beginning a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. The White Horse Inn, know what you believe and why you believe it. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition of the early reformers, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hello and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. We're starting a new series. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most beloved and often misunderstood passages of the whole Bible. Some come to Jesus' famous speech as if it were a blueprint for the gradual improvement of the human race through love rather than law. At the other extreme are those who say it has no place in the church today, but uh, entirely relegated to a future kingdom age. In between, there are various interpretations that we'll encounter along the way. The first thing to do is set up the context. Where is this sermon in the history of God's unfolding drama? Well, its focus is on the kingdom of God, also called the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus is bringing into the world. This kingdom isn't something that human beings are building, but a gift that God is giving. That's why it's called the good news of the kingdom, not the good program of the kingdom. God commissioned Adam and Eve to rule and subdue, to be fruitful and multiply, and to fill the earth. From its capital in Eden, God's reign was to spread to the ends of the earth. Israel, too, was called to guard and keep God's sanctuary, driving the serpent from the garden, living in love and peace together, spreading the kingdom from its capital in Jerusalem. As we read in Hosea 6-7, though, like Adam, Israel broke my covenant. And like Adam, Israel was sent into exile east of Eden. Yet through the prophets, God directed Israel's hopes to the coming Messiah and a deliverance that was based solely on his mercy. It was based on the Abrahamic promise rather than the Mosaic law, the oath that God swore to Abraham, not the oath that Israel swore at Mount Sinai. The promise God made to Abraham was of a temporal land, the land of Canaan, that would be typological of a greater promise, namely, the whole world, everlasting life in God's holy presence. He also promised Abram a seed, numerous physical descendants, but that too was typological of something even greater, a redeemer seed in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's this Abrahamic promise that the prophets appeal to as Israel lies in exile, poor in spirit, persecuted, meek, and hopeless, based on the judgment of Mount Sinai. The prophets proclaim a coming day when God's glorious presence will overflow the Jerusalem sanctuary. It will spill out all across the land of Israel, Ezekiel 37. And then the whole earth, Isaiah 54 and Daniel 2 the nations will come to Zion, Amos 9, Isaiah 2, and 11. 
in fact, in Isaiah 26, we read, You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. God tantalizes his people with the vision of a highway running between Israel and its erstwhile enemies, including Egypt and Assyria, as together they're called the people of God and worship as one body. Isaiah 26 prophesies deliverance for the earth, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits, pointing forward to the resurrection. In chapter 27, it's like a new garden of Eden, and Israel will at last fill the earth. All of this is rooted in the promise to Abraham, in you and your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So clearly, already in that promise to Abraham, the expanding of Israel, both geographically and numerically, is not limited to ethnic Jews. The Messiah, David's own Lord, as well as his descendant, will rule from sea to sea, Psalm 72, 8, and from the river to the ends of the earth. In Psalm 2, Yahweh promises the Messiah, his son, I will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 37 promises, but the humble will inherit the land. In fact, the phrase inherit the land is repeated in verses 3, 9, 18, 22, 29, 34. And this is no longer in the conditional form. They will inherit it forever. Psalm 2, 29. And the wicked will be cut off forever without inheritance. Verses 9 and 11. The earth is the kingdom of heaven. This is the age to come, referred to in the intertestamental Jewish sources, that is, between the Old and New Testaments, uh, with the roots in the prophets. Isaiah 60, 21, then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So this is the stock of prophetic hope from which the New Testament draws when it speaks of Christ as Abraham's promised seed, and the kingdom that he brings as a gift. As Paul tells us in Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In fact, the word for world here is not just the earth, but the whole cosmos. Cosmos is the Greek word used there. Romans 8 teaches that the whole creation is longing to join the cosmic liberation that will arrive when the saints are raised in everlasting glory. Hebrews 11 teaches that Abraham was justified through faith, longing for a greater heavenly inheritance. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we finally see the new heavens and new earth risen afresh with a glory never seen before, cleansed of all unrighteousness, violence, suffering, and death. This kingdom is a gift. That's why it's called an inheritance. It's something we hear about. We're made beneficiaries of it. But how? And what kind of new family, what kind of new society does this inheritance create? All of these questions are addressed in Jesus' famous sermon. But it's crucial that we begin where Jesus does with the Beatitudes. It's significant that Jesus does not begin with commands, but with blessing. In the Old Covenant, national blessing was held out as the condition for national obedience. If you do this, you will live long in the land that I am giving you. If you don't, you'll be cut off and exiled from the land. But Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant, reverses the order here. The blessing is greater than any blessing 
promised under the old covenant, just as the reality is greater than the shadows. And the blessing is surer than that of Sinai, because it's simply grounded in God's promise to give an everlasting inheritance gratis as a free gift. The law still has its place. It still commands good works. But these are not conditions for remaining tenants in God's land, but rather an inheritance for children whom he adopts in the son of his love. Because our elder brother has fulfilled the whole law, the commands are not conditions for us to fulfill, but the appropriate response of thanksgiving in view of the mercies of God. The Sermon on the Mount, that's our subject over the next few programs as we explore God's new society with your usual suspects here. Rod Rosenblatt, professor of theology at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Kim Riddlebarger, who is pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. Ken Jones is pastor of Glendale Baptist Church in Miami, Florida. And I'm Mike Horton. I teach at Westminster Seminary, California. Gentlemen, um, first off, maybe it would be good for us to put this in context of Jesus' ministry. What has happened leading up to this famous sermon? Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Most attempts to interpret the Sermon on the Mount ignore the context, and that's Mm. one of the surest ways to get the Sermon on the Mount uh, wrong. You go back to Matthew chapter 3, and you have the revelation of John the Baptist. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. John is the person who comes, sent by God to warn Israel that Messiah is about to come, and John is the guy who gives the last call to repentance. Once Messiah comes, it's too late because he's going to baptize the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John is the, the, the herald that the Messiah is coming. After John comes then, at the end of Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized by John and receives the Holy Spirit. So that begins his messianic ministry officially when he receives the Holy Spirit. First thing that happens after Jesus is baptized and receives the Spirit, he's led off into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. Mm-hmm. And you have that whole Exodus motif surface because <clears throat> Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days like Israel had been in the wilderness for 40 years and so on. Then Jesus comes back, and upon returning uh, from the wilderness, he begins his public ministry. And the, the location is important. Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, which is where the Old Testament uh, had predicted Messiah would appear and preach to uh, not only Israel, but also the Gentiles. And then verse 17 of chapter 4 is really critical because here's the, the, the hinge on which the rest of the gospel turns. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So once Jesus returns now, he is preaching the kingdom. Mm-hmm. and that It's at hand, it's whereas at hand. later mm-hmm. he will yeah. say, yeah. it's here. Now yeah. he's, at yeah. this point, early in his ministry, he's saying, it's at hand. Right, right. So it's come. He's preaching the kingdom. Hmm. Who is he addressing? It says that Jesus went up on the mountain, seeing the crowds. What, who, who is he addressing here? Well, there's a, there's a long debate about how inclusive that, that crowd is. At the end of chapter 4, you've got Jesus going throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues all over the place, healing people, uh, the language here, uh, preaching the gospel, the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction among the people. His fame spreads, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So there's some indication in chapter 4 that the crowd's pretty big. Mm-hmm. But in chapter 5, you have kind of a, a winnowing effect. Seeing the crowds, verse 1 of chapter 5, he went up on the mountain. 
And when he sat down, his disciples came. So there's a sense in which out of the, this multitude of people following, he's going to speak primarily to the disciples. And, and my take is that while he's preaching primarily to them, others certainly gather around and overhear it. Well, exactly. That, <clears throat> that's no small point because of uh, some of the preaching that's been done over the, to this over the centuries. If it's to the general world, then a lot of liberalism was getting it right. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it wasn't. This is a blueprint for the, new, the new world mm-hmm. right. that we're going yeah. to build. Right. Yeah, yeah. Love and brotherhood and all of that uh, sort of thing. But that's a, that's a key thing, just what you've read in that verse. Yeah. Well, and not only is that language of, of winnowing you know, the large crowd getting smaller important, I think the most obvious thing at the beginning of chapter 5, that it's so obvious it's easy to overlook, is the whole thing is a retelling of the God giving the law at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the category now, what's the here, background to this? Yeah, the, the category here is God called Moses and the 70 elders up onto mm-hmm the mountain, right. and gave the law. Mm-hmm. So whatever is going on in the rest of the chapter, that's what Matthew and that's what Jesus is is calling their attention to. The new Moses is at hand, not Moses the lawgiver, but Moses the covenant mediator. Mm-hmm. And God is going to now give Israel this new covenant revelation that was set in motion way, way, way back when God called Israel up on the mountain, its representatives, the elders. So it's, this is a kind of a retelling of that event. But with that mountain. significant difference that all of you brought up, that the beginning is the promised blessings. That right. There's the context that's major, unlike most. Yeah. Major exactly. reversal. Yeah. Major yeah. reversal. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and people really have to, have, we really have to get this. When you're talking about the Sinai covenant, when you're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, you have still have commands. But you have the blessing based on God's unilateral promise of mm-hmm. grace. You don't aim for blessing. Yes. You start with blessing. Yep. And then the commands follow on its heels. Mm-hmm. When you come to Mount Sinai, it is the people swearing, all this we will do, and God saying, okay, if you do, this blessing will happen. If you don't, this curse will happen. Jesus is ascending this mountain and he is issuing this sermon on the mount as Moses issued the Ten Commandments when he came down from the mountain. And people are meant to think something really history-turning yeah. is yeah. happening here. Yeah. Something epochal in Israel's mm-hmm. history is happening here, equal to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, yeah. if not greater. At least, yeah. Exactly. If it's, not greater. It's, it's an event of biblical proportion. Yeah. You're listening to the White Horse Inn as we're beginning a new series, Walking Through Christ's Sermon on the Mount. We'll be back after this break. Hi, folks. Mike Horton here. Did you know that every White Horse Inn is roughly 40 to 50 minutes in length? So if you're listening on the radio or downloading our podcast, then you're missing a lot of the conversation. So here's what to do. Head to our website, whitehorseinn.org, and sign up as an architect or a reformer. In addition to helping us get this message out, you'll be receiving extended editions of every broadcast, along with a subscription to our magazine, Modern Reformation. The web address, again, is whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org.
Welcome back to the White Horse Inn as we're introducing our new series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now let's get to the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about the reversion of the usual blessings, curses formula from the Mount Sinai covenant. Is this what Jesus means when he calls this the gospel of the kingdom? Hmm. So, so he doesn't start with the law of the kingdom. He starts with yeah. the gospel of the kingdom. This is good news. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's important to note, as Rod and Kenneth mentioned, the order's reversed. The blessings begin the process. Mm-hmm. Not, it, it, people yeah. read this as though, hmm, here's a list of things that I do, I'm do. i supposed to do, and if right. I do them, Absolutely. I'll receive the blessing. As opposed to reading this as though because Christ pronounces the blessing, the blessing comes to pass. Right. Remember, remember yeah. Jesus' role in redemptive history here. John has, has told Israel that the time to repent, to get ready for the Messiah is over. He's coming. So when Jesus appears publicly... Mm-hmm. He doesn't say to Israel, I'm going to give you one last chance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's he's, redo the let's Sinai redo covenant. This. Right. He starts in by fulfillment, and he fulfills what was promised, and he fulfills his kinses by pronouncing God's blessing on God's people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what he's doing is he's granting the kingdom. It's a grant. And in addition to that, he's giving the requisite disposition for those who are to be the recipients of the kingdom. Yeah. So if you yeah. look from verses 3 through 9... Everything in there is part of the gift of the gospel. It's God is the one who humbles. God is the one who makes hungry. God mm-hmm. is the one who gives peace. Uh, all yeah. of these things are given, not as a condition to receive, but because you have received it, this is what's being given to you. Here, here's Herman Ritterboss. He says, this does not mean that the first halves of the Beatitudes are setting up a moral ideal that one must pursue to inherit the kingdom of heaven. That eliminates most sermons. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> On the contrary, it is the redemptive significance of the kingdom that stands in the foreground. The Beatitudes are addressed, first of all, to those in misery. What is emphasized is that the kingdom of heaven contains deliverance for such people, not a reward that has been earned. Their existing condition is exactly the opposite of what each of the blessings says they now have. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. The only thing missing from that is the fact that the very presence of one who can dispense those blessings... Mm-hmm. Means it's something huge. Oh, absolutely! Place. Oh, already yeah. at the beginning of his yeah. ministry, yeah. the religious leaders have every reason to ask, "Who does he think he is?" Sure, yeah. Yeah. sure. Martin Lloyd Jones too uh, says that the advocates of the social gospel, having conveniently ignored the beatitudes, have then rushed on to a consideration of the detailed commands and have said, "This is the gospel." Yet others err by saying that Jesus is simply expounding and expanding upon the law of Moses. But this fails also to take account of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes immediately take us into a realm that is beyond the law of Moses completely. The Sermon on the Mount does expound and explain that law at certain points, but it goes beyond it. And then dispensationalists see it as pertaining to a future age, the kingdom age, which is not for the church now. This is patently false, since everything we find in the Sermon on the Mount, we also find in the epistles. Others in history have divided the church into upper and lower castes, with the monks as those who are especially devoted to becoming pure in spirit, meek, merciful, and obey the commandments laid down in the sermon. However, Jesus does not divide here his church. The whole sermon applies to the whole people of God. Amen. Yeah. 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 A lot of wisdom yeah. in that. Well said. Yes. So that sets us up now for the first of the Beatitudes... And Beatitudes just simply means the blessings. The blessings, right. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
First of all, blessed. What does mm. blessed mean? Sometimes you hear happy, and no, that's not... No, no, that's not enough. Yeah. With God giving the peace way down yeah, deep. Yeah, a beneficiary, it, yeah. And, yeah, and you're the beneficiary yeah. of something for free. And, yeah. and the very fact that it's Christ himself giving it creates it. Uh-huh. Yeah. In fact, here's how Paul defines blessedness. Hmm. And he's doing it from the prophets. When they talk about blessedness or the blessing, they're talking about the end time deliverance. Hmm. And here's how Paul defines it, again, basing it on the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. Romans 4, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing Hmm. of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Psalm 32. And whose Mm -hmm. sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not impute his sin. Yeah. There it is. That is the blessing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, oh, that's such a blessing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you just yeah. bless my heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in the context of, of this first beatitude, that, that's huge. When you look at, at the, the gravity of the law, which he will open up later, we're supposed to look at the law in our fallen condition. Yes, we do see the oughtness of, of, of human behavior, but we also ought to be brought under the deepest level of conviction yeah. of which we're not capable of in and of ourselves because we're always mm-hmm. going to find a limb to hold on to to mm-hmm. think that I'm better than someone else. Yeah. The end result is like the, the tax collector who goes into the temple and he doesn't even want to lift up his eyes, but he prays for the mercy of God, which is itself a fruit of God bringing him under conviction of his unworthiness compared to the standard of the law. That's a right. great picture, that, in yep. fact, of the very person he's yes. describing. Yes. yes. So he says, blessed yes. are the poor in spirit. Well, why are they poor in spirit? Because they actually see their condition. Yes, their bankruptcy. This yes. is this is what's so important for us to get, because I think a lot of us grew up with, here, here you have, you have commands. We're going to talk about the commands, sure. but just can't wait <laughs> to turn the gospel yeah. of the Beatitudes yeah. into law yep. by saying, now here are the attitudes that you need to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you can either do it in a kind of stern voice or with Robert Shuler, you could Mm -hmm. do it the way he did years ago when he wrote his book, The Be Happy Attitudes. Mm -hmm. But the form of that either way is an imperative. The be happy attitudes Mm -hmm. is still telling you to have this attitude when that's not the mood that you find here in the Greek text. The The mood is not be Blessed, be poor in spirit, be meek, be merciful. Well, it's that the blessed 
are these yeah. people who are at the end of their rope? Well, David, in the great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, says, you know, sacrifice and burnt offering you have, no, you have not required, but a broken and a contrite mm-hmm. spirit. Mm-hmm. And what is it that gives that broken and contrite spirit? It's God himself that brings us under the full weightiness of our conviction because yeah. we are we, right. we're not what, what we're supposed to be. Right. And yeah. it's then that we're able, as broken creatures that have been broken by God himself, that he heals. He heals yeah. through the gift of the gospel. Yep. And isn't it important that we read this in the light, too, of Matthew 23, where Jesus pronounces the curses on the yep. religious leaders as hypocrites. <clears throat> Woe to you. Woe mm-hmm. to you. That is, that's, you know, like Jeremiah and Isaiah bringing the woes, the covenant curses. Mm -hmm. Jesus is now doing what John the Baptist said he would do. He is coming and pronouncing damnation on that part of the house of Israel that is self-righteous and Mm -hmm. hypocritical and trusting in their own righteousness, Mm -hmm. not lifting a finger to help the next person with a burden, and they don't even get the law, much less the gospel. Yeah, they, they don't get the law because they, they are not impoverished in, of spirit. They look at, at the all. law and think they are looking at their own personal resume. Absolutely. Yep. And, oh, yeah, I, look I've at the rich that. young ruler. The rich young Been ruler. There, done that, bought the T-shirt. Yeah, my yeah. whole life long I've obeyed those. Yeah. And so he says, you are blessed. I mean, this is what we call a performative utterance. He's not just he's not just describing a doing reality. Doing things with words. Yes, mm. doing things with words. It's yeah. not just a description of a state of affairs because they are not blessed in terms of their current state of affairs. Right. Jesus right. is not saying look on the bright side. Yes. Mm. He's not saying there's a silver lining mm. here. Jesus yeah. is saying I am pronouncing you to be something that you are not in yourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And by my pronouncing it, it is now hereby so. Yeah. Luther made much of the word nevertheless. Mm. And this is a perfect example of it. Yeah. Or but but God in Ephesians Uh 2. That sort of thing. Yeah. You are blessed. You are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Regardless of your circumstances that seem to count against this promise, just as Abram and Sarah had no reason looking around them to say, I am righteous and I am the heir of all things and my seed will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Nothing, nothing in your circumstances, nothing in the morning newspaper gave you any encouragement that that was true. But I preached it and it is so. And you believe it and are justified. Yeah. Yeah. This is the one to whom everything in the Old Testament pointed. Right. And this is telling us he's here. And his first word here in this context is blessed are you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You are blessed. Now, Amazing. again, a Jewish person standing there would have gotten this better than we do. Yes. They would have said, hmm, looks like Moses. Mm. Sounds a little bit like Moses. But something very different is happening here than happened at Mount Sinai. The promises come first. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not the yeah. commands. Right. Yeah. Yeah, at Sinai, God announces who he is and what he's done, and now what he requires. Yes. Here, at yes. The, on the Sermon on the Mount, Listen up. he gives. You, are, you have yeah. this inheritance. Yeah. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, uh, points out that nothing more clearly justifies a clear-cut division between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, than this passage. Hmm. Well, you find it in Mary's Magnificat. Yeah. You have this paradox of... 
everything in the kingdoms of this world is about getting to the top of the ladder. Whatever right. field it is, uh, being number one, nobody remembers if you're number two. And in Christ's kingdom, that's turned upside down, and the exalted are made low, the mm. low are exalted. This is so different from the kingdoms of this world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what Paul said in Romans 4. This blessing comes to those not who make it to the top. Right. In which case it would be a reward. Yep. Right. Wages. But rather it's a gift of blessing that comes yeah. first. And it comes to the wicked. Yeah. yeah. Those who do not work but trust yeah. God. Yeah. We have a line in our book of Concord that says we're not even as virtuous as the rocks. Mm. At least they didn't rebel against their creator. <laughs> and, and to your point earlier, Rod, I, this, is, this is critical that we get this part of the sermon right this is not given as, okay, you will be blessed if you become, because we can't, no matter how humble it might appear, yep. there is no merit or virtue for you trying to manufacture the impoverished spirit that's required right. yep. here. Yep. Exactly. You can't do but it. But that's uh-huh. what we're naturally going to do when yep. we hear this. We're going yeah. to turn gospel yeah. into mm-hmm. a command, mm-hmm. and it, it's going to be, I've got to find it in my... So, but what we're saying here is, blessed are the poor in spirit equals blessed are the the ungodly who are justified. Exactly. God justifies exactly. the ungodly right. yeah. is 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 interchangeable with blessed are the poor in spirit. Yes, right. Yes, to get that is to get the central thing in Christianity, and here he's doing it again, only in a mosaic sort of replicative way. But the only way you can talk about the free blessing is from Romans 4, as you quoted, right. Mike, where it's the ungodly being declared as if righteous. Which, right. again, is Paul's interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant. Mm. When Paul says, this didn't come through the law, right? but through the righteousness which is of faith, that is the same as saying it didn't come from the Mosaic covenant, it came from the Abrahamic covenant. Right. And yeah. we're in that one. Right. Yes. That is the good news of the kingdom. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, and their followers are kind of those who are filled, Mm -hmm. those who are satisfied. Yeah, they get the the best seats in the house as soon as they walk in. Yeah. Everybody bows. Respect is paid to them. These are the people who are strong, not not weak and meek. These are the people who have it together. These are the people, and that specifically, not... Some generic right. opposition between high people and low people, but specifically the religious leaders who are at the top of the food chain yeah. are going to be at the bottom of the food chain and the people, the spiritual food chain, and the people at the bottom of that chain mm-hmm. who are lying there in misery and and get that Israel is still in exile. They really get that. They're the ones who are ready for the gospel. Well, and that's that's the self-perception, which Jesus very subtly challenges. It's not so subtle if you really understand it, but he subtly challenges them, even with statements like, I didn't come uh, to heal those who are well. Those who are well, they don't need a physician, but those who are sick. Well, he's not saying that anybody is well. In the same way, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says that unless your righteousness exceeds, 
precedes that of the Pharisees. Well, he's not saying that the Pharisees are the standard, right. but that's their self-perception. And so Jesus constantly challenges their self-perception yep. based on their own faulty understanding, because they're not poor in spirit, how they perceive themselves and their, their, uh, their, their understanding in, in terms of their relation to the law. And then uh, the next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Isn't there a real paradox here? Your situation is like this, and I'm declaring to you now that the opposite mm-hmm. is the case concerning you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nevertheless. Yeah. Nevertheless. Yeah. Well, and, and even something kind of more profound than that perhaps is going on, because Jesus knows that these current disciples have followed him into the wilderness. They're listening to him. They're witnessing this event. His words are creating the reality. And yet, because they're following Christ, he knows they're going to be persecuted. Mm-hmm. Mm. So yeah. he's, he's pronouncing, it's not so much that they're being persecuted now. Right. It's that they're going to be persecuted <clears throat> for right. following him. Yeah. And his blessing covers that, too. Yes. Yeah. It's going, hard times are going to come. But remember... I'm telling you, before that ever gets going. Yep. Yeah, and yep. Cer- yeah. certainly you have to think in uh, the book of Acts, uh, around the fourth sure. chapter, when sure. they are imprisoned uh, and are threatened for calling on the name of Jesus, that yep. that they count it uh, a, a privilege to be able to suffer for him. Certainly, uh, this has to be brought back right. to mind. Another clue that we're talking here about the Abrahamic covenant as the basis, rather than the Sinai covenant as the basis is that there was absolutely nothing in the Sinai Covenant about everlasting life. Mm-hmm. Mm. There was nothing in the Sinai Covenant about all the families of the earth being blessed. This was strictly for one nation yep. mm. as a type of the everlasting blessing. Exactly. Here, very clearly, the promise is Abrahamic and not Mosaic. Mm-hmm. The promise is you will inherit the earth. And this means that, again, we've said this before, salvation isn't just going to heaven when you die. Right. Right. Salvation is the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting in a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven and earth, inheriting the earth, is the kingdom of heaven. Right. Right. Well, I I hadn't seen it in this context before, but in Romans 4.13, Paul speaks of Abraham as the heir of the world. Mm -hmm. I hadn't made the connection here with that same... (laughs) thinking in mm-hmm. Sermon on the Mount. But the point is, for our dispensationalist friends who, are, who argue that the end time centers around Israel's return to the yeah. land, the Abrahamic covenant, including the land promises, are already fulfilled. <laughs> the land promises are universalized from the river of Egypt to the um, Euphrates. Euphrates. You know That was the original land promise. The land promise remains. It's just now been extended to, to the whole of new creation. <laughs> and so now you have the, the new mediator of the new covenant standing there taking his place in this story of a new creation and a new exodus. Telling Israel that you're going to inherit the whole earth. Wow. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. the, true way, Israel. the true Israel. Take that literally. The meek shall inherit yeah. the earth. We do. That's literal. We take yeah. it. We take exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Take it at yeah. his word. That's what yeah. he says. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and inevitably, somebody's going to say, who are the meek? But we've done that here yeah, in the show. Yeah, exactly. Who are the meek? It's not a character trait. <laughs> right. We're not talking about... Uh, Jesus saying, I'm going around looking for all the people who who would score meek on right. a personality survey. Right. It's about people being crushed yes. in spirit because yes. they have absolutely no hope unless God arrives on the scene 
and delivers them. Right. Yes. They don't imagine they have much going for them. Quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. They're crushed. They're broken. And the law has done it, and they know it. Yes. Well, uh, we're going to continue this discussion. We've just uh, scratched the surface here. Uh, we're going to get to the next beatitude in our next opportunity to talk about the Great Society based on the Sermon on the Mount. Thanks for being with us. We'll look forward to being with you again next time on the White Horse Inn.